Welcome to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. I'm Christian Sager, a writer and a designer. And I'm Charlie Bennett, a librarian and a radio raconteur. Each episode is us trying to understand the entertainment world that we all live in. Just a little bit better. Today's episode is about the Moomins and the Great Flood by Tove Jansen. This 1945 children's book began a publishing empire in Finland that is worth millions of dollars. We look at Janssen's beloved allegory about a world where a family survives turmoil and everyone is accepted for who they are. You can find out more about the show at patreon.com slash supercontext where you can post a message or send us an email at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com. Have you read the Moomin series? Did you know about this long before we did? All right, pop quiz, tough guy. Favorite children's book? It might be Make Way for Ducklings. Mm. McCluskey. There's another one that I really like about an elephant who sneezed, and I can't remember what it's called. I may have even gotten a copy of that for one of your kids. Um, An elephant that sneezed. Yeah, here it is. Stand back, said the elephant. I'm going to sneeze. (laughs) That's a really good one. It is written by Patricia Thomas. Okay. Art by Wallace Tripp. And then follow-up question. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite world-building children's book? Hmm. That's weird because I, I read books that weren't for kids at a very young age i think we can go with as a child what was your favorite world building that worked for you it was the hobbit for sure yeah yeah i started reading the hobbit when i was in kindergarten this is an infamous story in my household i went to the library at the elementary school and i asked for a copy of the hobbit and the librarian told me i couldn't have it because i wasn't prepared for it and I wouldn't understand it <laughs> I went home and I complained and my parents got me a copy of the Hobbit yeah and I loved it that's not our job we're not supposed to do that librarians I mean yeah you know this was uh, uh, rural Texas in the 1980s so it's not terribly surprising that that was the result no I mean surprise yeah. and inappropriateness yeah uh, don't have to go together <laughs> but I think that's probably I mean like most people where I learned about world building yeah. And you? I think my favorite kid's book, now that I've been a parent for a while, is Big Red Barn by Margaret Wise Brown of Goodnight Moon fame. Okay. But I, I like Big Red Barn. And for world building, I think it might be Narnia. I might oh, have to, yeah. I might have to go with that. I got really into those around that same time, too. Uh, oh, you know what the other one was that was really big for me when I was around that age? The Lloyd Alexander books, the Black Cauldron oh, yeah. and that stuff. You know what? That's it. Prydane. Yeah. That's the, that is my favorite. Yeah. I read a lot of those. I dove into those fuckers. Whenever we approach a children's book or children's media, I always have this kind of like, my memory feels like a closet that is quite precarious. You know, and you open it up and you can see a bunch of stuff and you can maybe pull two or three boxes. But if you're not careful, everything will fall down on your head. 
you know? Mm-hmm. And I sometimes wonder if I actually should do the everything falling down my head kind of feel. Yeah. Yeah. Probably take a week off. Give yourself. And just it. remember. Yeah. Maybe for your 50th, you can just sit there and remember for a week and just cry. I mean, that sounds appropriate. So why did all of this stuff make you think of this episode in particular? Because you're, you're getting misty up here at the top. I know. I, I think I, I didn't know exactly how the starter was going to go. When we were given this assignment by our co-producer, Miriam Meany, she mentioned that she had great affection for this book and its series. Mm-hmm. And, and like you could, I, I think you had the same experience. You could read it in her message that it was just, there was love it was important to her yeah yeah and i had never heard of it even remotely me either and it turns out it's like one of the biggest things in the world um exactly and that we are uh yeah we know nothing john snow that and i I have to wonder like is there something of mine that isn't known you know isn't known to the whole world or did i get all of the kind of like truly promoted stuff you know, my, I didn't grow up in a literary household. My parents are readers. I'm a reader, but it wasn't like I had academics or artists or writers, you know, raising me. So they weren't incredibly discerning. They weren't like going through every single book and figuring out what the best thing to give me was. So I got the classics, you know, Narnia and, uh, uh, blueberries for Sal and that kind of thing. Yep. Yep. That's another one from my history. I feel like this one could have uh, become part of my reading world pretty easily. And uh, it seems surprising that it didn't after doing the research on it. Well, not so surprising given the fact that this wasn't translated into English until you were in your thirties. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) It's not that surprising. Your parents wouldn't hand you a book and finish and be like, Hey, figure it out. Yeah, no, you've busted me. I totally forgot the 2005 translated into English date. I was thinking more that that was the most recent translation, but no, it wasn't at all translated. Well, yeah, so this is a weird way to start this episode, but we are talking about a series of children's books, which I feel wholly unqualified to talk about. Uh, And they are Finnish children's books, which I feel even more unqualified to talk about. But we did the research and we read the first in this series, the first book in the Moomin series. This is Moomin Troll and the Great Flood. And then we are to understand, based on the internet, that you pronounce the author's name as Tove Janssen. Uh, This book was published in 1945, but this particular one wasn't translated into English until 2005. This is what's weird to me, right? They're so popular. The other books are translated into English, but the first one wasn't translated until they were celebrating its 60-year anniversary. Yeah, this is the uh, the book that started something but didn't really um, do the hard work yeah. of the later books, which is kind of interesting. And here in the States, it's published by an avant-garde comic book company. It's not... Yeah. It's not a children's book company. This book was relatively difficult for me to get a hold of. I live in Booktown, USA, Portland, and I called two, maybe three separate bookstores and they didn't have it. And the way I finally got a hold of it was one of the clerks at the bookstore was like, I was in this 
a stationery store the other day, and they had all of Tove Jansen's books in a corner. And I called, and sure enough, the, that's where you get your Moomin Troll books in Portland is uh, this little like pen and stationery store <laughs> on Division. Hilariously, uh, the DeKalb County Library System had a copy. Had four copies, in fact. There were copies in the library, but they were all out. And there was uh, like okay. a zillion holds. So there was no way I could get those in time. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. Yes, there were four copies in my library system, and no one had them out at all. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I guess Portlanders are reading this to their kids. Because um, of all the fins you have there. You know, it's basically the same thing here. Um, we have some information here to help you dive into the world of Moomins with us. Because if you're like us, maybe you don't know about it. Or if you're one of our European listeners or maybe Australian listeners, you might have a great affinity for it yeah, because know it's all about quite it popular. Like, Why are you guys talking about this like idiots? Yeah. It would I, be I say, as if we were listening to a podcast and people were like, have you ever heard of Mickey Mouse? That is a little bit what it's like. Um, I have one last thing about the experience of learning about this. You might remember that when we first started talking about it, I had a completely wrong vision of what it was going to be. I thought it was a collection of comics or comic strips. Yeah. Because there is one, though. Yeah. I mean, you weren't wrong. There's a lot more to this even than the single book and the multimedia, really, of of the Moomins and the Moomin um, troll saga. So Mm -hmm. let's see if we can uh, get rid of some of this ambiguity. And, and talk about Moomin and the Great Flood by Tove Jansen. So Allison Flood at The Guardian wrote a good summary of this book and says that this sees Jansen using a mix of sepia washes and pen and ink line drawings to tell the story of Moomin Mama and young Moomin Troll and how they're on the hunt for the long-lost Moomin Papa through forest and flood. And on the way, they meet a bunch of friends uh, the one that sticks with them the longest is just referred to as the little creature, although apparently later on in these books he's called Sniff. And this is the little creature who thinks it's your fault that all of this is happening. Yeah, and uh, I related to Sniff the most of all the characters <laughs> in this, so, you know. Have you ever told someone on your head, be it? <laughs> Not using those exact words, Not but like words. pretty yeah. much every day I say that to somebody. <laughs> So, um, so this is a children's book. Every page has a drawing in it. Uh, there's, this is my copy. Did you get the, the same Show me. copy? Yeah. Yours I, looks I the same. I love as this. this book. I love this object. I love the text and I love the drawings. That's D and Q, like the high quality production of the book and how great everything looks and the way that it's laid out and everything. That's like, that's what they're known for. Um, I really wonder what first editions of this looked like because I imagine they had like kind of like almost newspapery, just flimsy vellum, you know. Right. They they weren't given the adoration that this book is given in the reprint. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, to give you an example, I think what the book is seventeen dollars here in the United States, and it's like twenty pages long. Um, I read like it I paid in as much for this twenty minutes. Yeah, I paid as much for this as I would pay for like a thousand page novel. Um, so it's like a really high quality short children's book. Um, now the entire Moomin's project has nine books that were released. There are also the following 
five picture books, a comic book strip that went on for like 50 years that has been collected as Charlie was thinking about. There's also TV series, films, a theme park. There's apparently like themed stores and cafes. Like this is a big fucking deal and it completely missed us here in America. Yeah. Can you describe, you've got the book right there. Can you describe what Moomin Troll looks like? Uh, Moomin Troll reminds me of Bone. Yes, uh, It exactly. is a very crude drawing of a creature that has almost no physical characteristics. It's just a white blob with little hands and little legs and a tail and a long nose. Um, but other than that, there's no detail to it. They're supposed to be, I think, like Finnish fairy tale trolls, and they run into other like fairy tale kind of creatures along the way. But um, they're just drawn as kind of like it. it it's a very much in in the vein of Scott McCloud's theory of symbolism, and that like when you look at it, because it's so simply rendered, you can identify with it faster. Yeah, and the proportions are just unhuman enough mm-hmm. that it's clearly not a person it is mm-hmm. a i mean it has a personality the moomin troll but it is not human it's kind of like a hippo sometimes yeah. other times it looks like an aardvark i guess but yeah um and there are other moomins moomin mama and moomin papa shows up at the end of this book um spoiler alert <laughs> i when i first started reading it and i hadn't done any of the research i was taken with a couple of things The first was how dark it was for a children's book. And I thought, this is the kind of thing I would have enjoyed when I was a kid. And knowing how protective you and your wife are of what your kids are reading, I thought, oh, this is the kind of thing that probably most modern day parents wouldn't let their kids read. Well, I immediately wanted to take it home and read it to the kids. Mm -hmm. But I also like I know now that I have to pay a little more attention to things like um, very subtle sexuality and scariness you know there's a there's a giant snake that menaces them Mm -hmm. um tulipa the sort of forest fairy that they meet there's one um pen and ink drawing that is her wading into the surf with no clothes on yeah and you see her butt crack yeah and it's not like oh clearly not good for kids but i think what feels like perfectly fine for children before you have children Mm mm-hmm is maybe not uh, exactly right for children. Well, yeah, I was I was just kind of struck by that. And I, I think it's easy for us to have the perspective of, oh, this is very European. Uh, and there's also there's also some interesting family dynamics in this. And uh, again, without knowing anything else about these books, as I was reading it, I was like, so this is a story about a family that the father just like abandoned them and just took off in the middle of the night and like went off on his like wanderlust journey. And, uh, and then like I did the homework and read up on this and it turns out, no, that's not yeah. what it's supposed to be, but it really feels like that. Well, the story operates in the same way as you just described the drawing. It is so, um, detailed in the storytelling but undetailed in sort of like psychological motivations Mm -hmm. that you will put into it whatever fits your sense of this 
of, of, of family dynamics or mm -hmm. how dangerous the world is or how you should handle each other or how important love is and, and, uh, and compassion. I would, I have one dispute with the way that Alison Flood describes it though. She says that the like quest that the character's on is to find Moomin Papa. That is not how the book begins. No, the no, book they begins just, with them looking for a place own. to build a home. Yeah. And they basically go from one location to the next. They meet fun characters. They build up like an entourage. And then they eventually get to a place where somebody's like, hey, we think we saw your dad. And they get really excited about that because dad abandoned them. <laughs> and, they're, and they're like, oh, shit, we got to find him. And then when they find him, spoilers, he's like, oh, yeah, like, I totally came out here and built a house, guys. Uh, here, it's for you. And that's the way this again, ends. Again, with uh, you can put into it whatever you have inside <laughs> you to put into it. Oh, so you read it and you you thought that that was like pretty normal? No, I read it that uh, Moomin Papa felt deeply regretful that he had been um, suckered into heading off with the voiceless weirdos, the Hemulans. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he really hoped that his family would find him, mm. and he was ready for them now that he had. Uh, rethought his actions so one of my big questions about all of this is how much is lost in translation and we'll talk about that because there is no point in here where anybody reading it is like oh yeah this is about like a father who shirks his duties uh yeah no it's it's much more um uh archetypical yeah 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 so let's get started with tove jansen uh she grew up in an artistic household in helsinki finland her father uh, was Finnish and her mother was Swedish. They were both artists. Uh, her father was a sculptor. Her mother was an illustrator. Apparently, this was a very artistic household. Uh, one of the stories in the research was that her family had a pet monkey named Papalino uh, that just like hung out with them while they all drew all day, basically, or sculpted. Uh, and that she grew up in this environment and was somewhat expected to be an artist and became a commercial artist at a young age and in a lot of ways was like her mother's backup like her she shadowed her mother if her mother got sick and a project was due tove would take it over and we should say she was born in 1914 mm. right so her mm -hmm. childhood was in the 20s um i guess that's when you could have a pet monkey and the cops didn't come to take you away. Hey man, it's Finland. It's very different there. Very European. Uh, they <laughs> can have monkeys, I guess. I, I thought that was a little odd as well, but you know, monkeys seem to be on the rise again. There's a lot of talk about having monkeys in the household and I'm not against it. Okay. I, I'm glad we're learning so much today. <laughs> the biography in the New Yorker piece by James Guida um, says that, uh, Tove went to art school, uh, traveled the world a little bit and ended up drawing cartoons like editorial political cartoons for 15 years, uh, for one political paper called Garm, uh, along with other outlets. Uh, and the, the note about Garm is that the editor told her, do as you like, just make sure you hit them in the mouth. Yeah, I, this sounds like it was a political magazine. And so she was doing like political cartoons about Hitler and Stalin. Uh, and there's a lot made about that. There's also a lot that's made about the first time that she drew the Moomins, which was apparently when she was a child. Uh, 
first of all, she had her first book published when she was 13, and it wasn't a Moomin's book. It wasn't this book. But she was drawing the Moomins after she and her brother had an argument about Immanuel Kant. And she sketched, quote, the ugliest creature imaginable on the toilet wall and then wrote under it Kant as a way to get back at her brother, I guess. <laughs> this is so, this is like a different time, dude. A different time in a different place. So <laughs> sounds the Moomin, nice. It sounds yeah, nice. The Moomin as a concept was a child's concept. Mm-hmm. But it then entered into her work, her public work, by being sort of the character that is included in the editorial cartoon and talks a little bit to the audience. Um, the the Moomin was written in, or drawn into those uh, cartoons for Garm, sometimes being um, snarky and shitty about Hitler mm. before mm. the war started. Uh, and let's see. Oh, here from the New Yorker. Originally, meaner-looking and troll-like creatures called snorks uh, began as marginalia, a sort of um, a signature. And uh, as uh, Guido writes, might even be found loitering in a cartoon about the German army's evacuation of Lapland. So that confused me a little bit because snorks are a commercial children's property here in the U.S. I don't know how common they are in other parts of the world, but snorks are do you remember them there when we were kids they're like underwater smurfs Smurfs. it's like the same thing as smurfs Uh, but they had like little snorkels built into their head yeah um that sounds disgusting but apparently they're unrelated uh now tove apparently used these moomin books as a way to deal with her anxieties about how the world was falling apart around her i mean this is the precipice of world war ii And uh, her biographer says, sorry, this isn't a biographer. It's a family friend. He says, Tove's anxiety and grief are embedded in the first two Moomin books. She was depressed during the war, and it's mirrored in those books. They're about catastrophes. She was writing a children's book about a great flood, and that is not common, you know, this flood that washes away everybody. Not specifically the flood, but writing a children's book about a natural disaster that displaces, that makes refugees out of your main characters to start with. The anxiety that she was feeling was coming from the war. One of her brothers went to war and her dad was like a uh, vaguely anti-Semitic proto-fascist. Maybe not proto-fascist, but fascist leanings. Mm -hmm. And, um, And she was deeply affected by not only what was happening in the world, but how it was sort of entering into her home, entering into her family. So, yeah. So these first two books are basically about Helsinki and how people were having to leave their homes because of the war. Um, Nobody really paid attention to these two two books. Apparently uh, she didn't have a breakthrough. Yeah. Who needed to read that stuff? Right. Yeah. Uh, Boel Weston, who is the family friend and now a professor of literature at Stockholm university said that uh, the descriptions of creatures leaving their homes was just like here in Helsinki where people were leaving their homes for fear of the bombs. Mm -hmm, She -hmm. captured that and put it in her books. So despite the fact that it was deeply personal for her, it probably wasn't necessary for people to relive that trauma in a kid's book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the breakthrough happened after the war in 1951. Uh, The third book, which is called Finn Family Moomin Troll, was translated into English. 
And there were two new characters in this book. We have not read this book. We only read the first one. But apparently they are called Thingummy and Bob. And they represent Tove Jansen and a married woman with whom she had an affair. And so this is where um, her sexuality first kind of peeps into the story. Although there's nothing about sexuality in these books as far as I understand. It's it's more about uh, their symbolic stand-ins for her relationships. Yeah. And I think this is really only in hindsight that you can declare what these stories meant. When I read Moomins and the Great Flood, I didn't feel like, oh, they were scared of bombs. I didn't even think that, you know, they had to leave their house because there was something terrible happening that the world was inflicting on them. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just, it was a story that had a little extra oomph to it than some of the kids' books I read. But we're discovering in the research, which is now like all retroactive, uh, she was containing her life, uh, which had some extremes in it in these kids books mm -hmm. and they still became incredibly popular. Yeah. Um, it wasn't overt because homosexuality was illegal in Finland at the time. So she kept this relationship a secret and uh, apparently further relationships show up again symbolically through these books. Uh, again, the family friend says you could read this as being the lesbian love between Tove and a, uh, her lover whose name was Vivica they have their secret love in a suitcase when they open the suitcase and they show it to the whole of Moomin Valley it is also a picture of how they show their love to the world that makes it a beautiful story yeah and the love in the suitcase is a ruby that they won't tell anybody about until the end of the book so this is kind of um, what makes these books I think really appealing to people internationally is that and we'll, we'll see this over and over again in the way people talk about it the characters in this seem to be understanding and accepting of almost everybody they encounter yeah it's it's a, a very um open and vulnerable vulnerable world like all the stuff that happens in the moomins and the great flood people are working it out in the story. You know, there's a couple of things like a flood, an antlion and a snake. Mm -hmm. And those are the, those are the villains or the problems that don't seem to have any compassion to them. But pretty much everything else is just a problem of communication. Mm -hmm. Even the bird who has lost his spectacles and is kind of pissy, you know, as soon as they treat him like a, a person and find his spectacles, he's like, Oh, I, Perhaps I should be a little less nasty to you. There is a little bit of that, though, throughout. Like, like, and this is kind of interesting for a children's book. Like, uh, the adult figures will lose their temper. Like, the mo mom gets That's annoyed right. yeah, at yeah. the little creature and says something snitty to it. And then it's, like, upset and basically, like, walks off in a huff or something. That's a good point. It's not like a, it's not a um, idealistic or It's not like a utopia. Kind yeah. Of, yeah. But people who make mistakes recover and mm -hmm. reconnect. Yeah. So uh, that book was so successful that it caught the attention of a London agent named Charles Sutton. And they offered Jansen just this huge financial deal to pr produce the comic book strips. And those would come out in London's evening news newspaper she made six strips a week for seven years, starting in 1954. 
that that was a big deal. Uh, eventually, just those comic book strips reached 12 million readers. Yeah, so in 120 newspapers throughout the world. So we're saying this book wasn't translated into English until 2005, but 1954 was when the movements first started getting really big in English-speaking media. Yeah. And Jansen is in a long tradition of children's authors or uh, artists who appeal to children who are very not childlike themselves, who have no children. Uh, her uh, niece says she must have lived on a diet of coffee and cigarettes. Mm. She didn't have any children of her own. Uh, she lived in a very bohemian kind of uh, lifestyle and environment and uh, and despite all that, she's still writing about family dynamics mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, Moomin Papa and Moomin Mama are often understood as her parents, Victor Janssen and Signe Harmerston Janssen. I'm sorry to anyone who knows how you're supposed to say those. Uh, and then also there's these like strange creatures or melancholy characters that sort of... Uh, move through the story, the, uh, the Hemulin I mentioned before, or, or the Hatton, Hatta Fatteners who travel in quote, concerted ominous groups. And they kind of represent philosophies that are being tried out by, by people in the world. All of which sounds like it maybe shouldn't be wonderful for a small child to read. Mm -mm. And yet it's exactly what, a lot of kids wanted to read. Well, I'll tell you one person who thought little kids should read it. His name was Walt Disney. And uh, he saw it and he was like, this will help me build my empire. And he reached out to Jansen. He offered exclusive rights to the word Moomin for, I would assume, a large sum of money. And she was like, yeah, no. Uh, and eventually she started getting depressed making all this Moomin related content. Cause she didn't think of the Moomin stuff as her art. She thought of it as like work as commercial as, work as product. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she was frustrated. Uh, and she said, quote, those damn Moomins, I don't want to hear about them anymore. I could vomit on the Moomin trolls. And, uh, even though she was traveling all over the world, she felt like, working on these characters was was hiding her true talents and that she wasn't she wasn't getting the opportunity to work on what she wanted to but she didn't sell out when she had the chance to no i yeah i suppose that right like she could have taken a gazillion dollars from walt disney and gone and done whatever she wanted i admire her because she didn't do that but she still went and did what she wanted yeah she just she did say eventually i'm tired of trying to manage this thing yeah. um, and instead of then selling it off to Disney or going back and saying I'll take the money now she just sort of settled it down so she eventually uh, established a long term relationship with a woman named Tuliki Pietila uh, who was another artist in Finland and they, they didn't my understanding is they didn't live together they lived in the same building and they like basically like shared apartments like each well, yeah, of their this places still, were like workspaces that they would go to to do their own thing and then they would come together at night this is still the 50s right mm -hmm. like homosexuality was uh illegal in 51 so even if uh 
<laughs> what's the line, the John Mulaney line? People are going to have to get real cool with a lot of stuff real quick, mm-hmm. right? Which is not what people do. So yeah. in the 50s, they still had to uh, keep it under wraps. So uh, like with the previous relationship, a character showed up in the Moomin Troll books that was based on Tulicky, who was named Tutiki. And uh, Tutiki, quote, is the one who gives Moomin Troll guidance through the winter and through hard times and was an important character to Tove. Uh, and this, this is like establishing like the, how real their relationship was that it manifested in, in the book. Um, I think this is like at this point, like six books into the nine books or something like that. Are you familiar with uh, frog and toad stories? Uh, vaguely. Yeah. I kind of remember those from being a kid. They're a little bit creepy. Yeah. And I read, uh, recently the, the creator of frog and toad was a married uh, father yeah. who came out. He was gay. Oh, okay. And, and he was writing sort of a, a homosexual relationship in Frog and Toad mm-hmm. in, in, a, uh, in a kid's book, right? Yeah. My I mean, kids, I, I think my kids love Frog and Toad, except for the dream one that scares them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, looking at it now, Frog and Toad was definitely a book I had as a kid. Um, I remember there's an animated version of this that was kind of haunting but uh yeah i think this is a thing that both progressives and conservatives assume about children's literature going back to well shit at the same time that this was happening in finland uh over in the united states people in senate subcommittees were arguing about whether or not batman and robin were gay Uh, an argument that continues to this day chris yeah that's true Um, but like, I mean, think about how many, uh, same sex friends in children's storytelling are, have this label applied to them. Bert and Ernie is another one from our childhood. Right. Um, so I think it's something that people expect, which is kind of interesting because they expect it. And then when they find out, like in this instance or with frog and toad, there's like the kind of, Oh wow. Can you believe it? And it's like, yeah, we've (laughs) all been talking about this. I think this this all points toward how um, we both know that children's literature can program kids. You can provide them with ideas and and values I won't, very easily. I won't go that far. That is that's strong language in the discipline of communication. So okay. I, I think that that what you're saying, and I don't think you mean this, but it sounds. Um, it sounds like you're saying there's no agency and that the media, uh, is entirely to blame for what forms the children's values. And I don't think that's true. I have used a term of art that I should not use. Yeah. So I will step back and say, we know that the ideas and values presented to children in their books can sneak past a sort of immediate apprehension Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. And uh, provide a foundation for ideas later. You know, the the whole point of Narnia, for instance, right? Or one of the points of Narnia was to soften the ground for the idea of the resurrection. Yeah, and that's always fascinating to me because I read all of those books voraciously and never once thought it had anything to do with Christianity. And it was a thing that, like, my family were trying to get me into, like... Right. making me go to church, making me read the Bible as a kid. And I just didn't care. And 
then years later finding out like, oh, C.S. Lewis wanted you as well. That was lost on me. So despite it seeming like a sort of hysterical reaction, like, oh, think of the children, you know, if they read this stuff, it'll warp them. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like, well, a warp is a, a loaded term, but whatever is influencing whatever lives inside the this children's literature actually does make it into people's minds um in that uh, like dreamlike logic that sort of sneaky way disguised ideas creep across the mental line easier than just explicit lectures so this is kind of like you're getting into some pretty heady territory here like you're talking about what alan moore refers to as ideascape or like the Jungian idea of archetypes uh, that, yeah, like, I mean, this these is things practically reach a Freudian across. idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Jansen writing this uh, series of kids' books that were really just her putting her life into um, into IP that she'd been kind of not forced into, but she she was expected to create. Mm-hmm. Right? She was kind of she was a brand in a way. She was. A, you know, she was being asked to produce. She was laying out a very um, uh, diverse and tolerant bohemian and free life in the guise of this troll book. Yeah, I, I think this was her outlet to, I don't know, somehow express what she wished the world was like, you know. Um, and that's something admirable as well. Like <laughs> we go back and forth about this on episodes, but like my inclination is to not do that, but to show the world as, as it, how horrible it is as I see it right through uh, to fiction. inoculate. Yeah. yeah. And, and her urge is like, no, let's, let's show how wonderful it could be. Um, so she worked on this stuff for a long, long time and, and everything about her life ended up in these stories down to her mother dying uh that deeply affected her and uh she and her partner went on a world like around the world trip and this was the first time that jansen started working on her first piece of adult fiction which was called the summer book and i find this so interesting the moomin troll story or the moomin troll you know history uh took her from being a kid, making fun of her brothers, you know, through through her professional life, through her um, her finding her lifelong partner. Mm. The last book included um, a character that she literally based on herself and reflected the loss of her mother mm-hmm. and her grief and was her last Moomin Troll book. And then she moved on to writing for adults after her mom passed away. Yeah, so... Uh, Jansen passed away herself in the summer of 2001. Uh, she must have heard Tools Lateralis right before she went. And Tuliki Pietila died eight years after that. And so that's a very short version of Jansen's life. I, I do want to add one last thing before we uh, talk more about the book itself. Her uh, summer book, the summer book that she wrote, her first adult fiction, Hmm. was still about the relationships between parents and kids. In Mm -hmm. this case, between a young girl and her grandmother. Mm -hmm. uh, And was still biographical. So 
what we're really looking at here is how the publishing industry brought this into the English-speaking world. Uh, Miriam suggested this to us, but, you know, we're based here in America, so we're trying to understand the version of it that we could get a hold of. Now, apparently these are translated by a well-known British translator and a literary critic named David McDuff. And the things this guy translates are so vastly different than this book, it fascinates me. Um, he is known for translating poetry and Dostoevsky. He's translated Crime and Punishment, The Brothers Karamazov, and The Idiot. <laughs> and, for Penguin Classics. Yeah, and and just uh, lots of other poetry. Um, and then Tove Jansen's work. This was published by a company called Schiltz originally. Schiltz and Soderstroms, I think. Oh, is, is very nice umlauts. Yeah, very good. Uh, that was like her original publisher, and, and it was created through the merger of two Finnish and Swedish publishing houses in 2012. So I think the first one that, that did the Tove Jansen stuff was Schiltz. Uh, and they are now the biggest publisher in Finland, Swedish literature. And so what's kind of fascinating about this is like, this is our version of the big five again, right? Like there was this company in Finland that she was associated with and they put out her little kids books. They got really big. And then decades later, eventually that all got merged together into one huge company. I, I feel like I should say, two numbers to you right now, Chris. Okay. You ready? Me. Yeah. So Finnish and Swedish literature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the population of Finland now is five and a half million people. Okay. And the population of Sweden now is 10 million people. Yeah, that makes sense though. Like you're talking about 15, 16 million people and that audience is bigger than most most book audiences in the English speaking world. It's true. I just want to point out that the the, the five corporation feel yeah. of, of Schiltz Schiltz is uh, is different than our sort of you know Hachette. Well, they have they have less of a, a I guess like spread to to try to get this stuff out there. But I, from what I was reading about these, it sounds like the Moomins are ubiquitous in Finland. And that's probably part of why the company is so successful. Uh, like, apparently, like, every home has, like, you know, some effigy of the Moomins yeah. in it. In the and, way that, like, Mickey Mouse is everywhere here. And, yeah, anecdotally, it's, you know, the Moomin trolls are all over. And it's not like everyone is a devoted reader of the Moomin trolls. But probably people have a coffee cup mm -hmm. or... A little ceramic figure or a watch, etc. Uh, the uh, publisher um, said that they actually delayed the publication of this new translation to match up with uh, Tove Jansen's centenary uh, in 2014. And as she says, did our best to make it a lovely possession. I now wish we had similar similar works for all our great children's titles the earliest Pooh or Alice. It offers such a fascinating insight into the creative process. So the most important thing to take from there is that she put the Moomin Trolls next to Winnie the Pooh and Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you know, when you were talking earlier about, like, world building, I didn't consider Alice in Wonderland, but that would be another one. Like, the post-Alice uh, in Wonderland books in that world are bordering on Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, there's yeah. stuff that's taken for Dungeons & Dragons, like uh, the Vorpal Sword, I believe, appears in there. And I would say the uh, Winnie the Pooh books also are very much world building in the sense that they declare a certain set of rules of existence mm. mm-hmm. for imaginary creatures that are inspired by, you know, re- real stuffed animals and then put a young child in the position of this kind of benevolent um, deity or, mm-hmm. or near deity watching over a particular land. Uh, the British publisher also said this about this specific book, the Moomins and the great flood. She said it's a revelation. It shows how Janssen's ideas and artwork evolved as she developed the movement themes and series. And it was written in the dark days of war. And it was how she escaped from them. And she used the artwork. Uh, That's the other thing we should mention here. So there's two types of art that are in here. There's pen and ink line drawings. And then there are big sepia tone, like full page paintings. And it should be understood, the Moomins become color. They become a a um, colorful series, but at this time it was sepia and black and white. And it's it took me a few pages to realize that the small images were sort of thin line drawings, mm-hmm. and then the big page spreads were that that beautiful watercolor. Um, it's funny, you know, watercolor, but it's really just sepia. Yeah, I don't know exactly what media she was using here. Um, But one thing that occurs to me is in the time that she was creating this, replicating watercolor in the printing process was not as easy as it is now. Um, So the line drawings make a lot more sense to me than the sepia does. Your copy there also includes her preface, right? Mm -hmm. From 1991, which... uh, really set the tone for the book. You know, she says explicitly, I wrote this because I was getting scared and unhappy and I feared for my family and, and my country. Yeah. Uh, Hitler sucks. And, uh, I think that's why this was my first happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that appeared for the first time, apparently in the version that we have here, uh, which is published by Drawn and Quarterly. We mentioned them already. So this book has been published by like, I think like five different publishing companies, depending on what country you're in. But here in the States, and I guess most of North America, Drawn and Quarterly has the reproduction rights. They're based out of Montreal. uh, And they're a company that specializes in comics. They do like really high quality archival work. Uh, Their books are known specifically for their high quality in printing and design. It's the most successful comic book publisher in Canada. Man, there's so many people here in their list of folks that they've worked with that uh, they've they've done work for. Linda Berry. Kate there's Keaton, so many that I recognize. Yeah, many of them. Chester Brown, Daniel Close, Michael DeForge. Who else is in here? Uh, Chris Ware. Yeah, Rutu Modan, Seth, Adrian Tomine. Like these are all huge name independent comic book creators. And Drawn and Quarterly, also before they uh, reprinted The Great Flood, they were putting out a complete uh, Tova Jansen comic strip 
um, mm. compendium, mm-hmm. you know, Moomin, the complete comic strip. Yeah. So if you want to get a hold of all of this stuff, I think it's available now. So we just talked all about how um, there have been a bunch of reprints and that people love this whole series and uh, that it's all over the place. But at the initial publication, uh, it didn't sell. It just was not a big deal. Yeah. Uh, One of the writers that we have um, looked into says that uh, it came out at the same time as Pippi Longstocking, which did get bought by Disney uh, or at least licensed by Disney. Um, but that was not important. The, the low sales, like she wasn't making the Moomin books to get famous. As we said, she kind of felt like the, the, those weren't her real art. It sounds like she was a commercial artist by day, yeah. you know, and this was part of that. She saw this as an opportunity to potentially, you know, uh, make a living. It wasn't until the third book. And I think we said this already that came out in 1948, that it was translated into English, um, she eventually became very popular in Britain because of the comic strip. By the time we get to now, it's 15 million books uh, and 44 different languages it's been translated into. Yeah. And she has passed away, but there is a company that controls Moomins called Moomin Characters, and they kept it in the family. The company was actually set up by Jansen and her younger brother, in the expectation of dealing with image rights. Mm-hmm. It sounds like her niece is the one who runs it now. It's called Moomin Characters. Um, oh, here's the quote. Most Finnish homes contain some sort of Moomin memorabilia, such as a towel or a children's plate or an adult coffee cup. Their position in national life is such that over the years, the Finnish post office has issued numerous Moomin stamps Two stamps that bear Tove Janssen's portrait were issued in January of the year that this article was written. Uh, and uh, oh, and events f- marking her centenary were celebrated both in Finland and in the U.S., Japan, and Europe. That's 2014. So that does sound like Mickey Mouse to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that there is at least one Mickey Mouse object in my house. And I... I like Disney movies when I watch them with my kids mm-hmm. and I like Disney movies when I was a kid, but I don't have affection for the Walt Disney corporation. Mm-hmm. And yet I know that there's at least there's like a goofy doll somewhere in the house mm-hmm. and a little Mickey mouse. And the kids keep bringing home, uh, you know, art projects that are based on pages torn out of a Disney coloring book. Yeah. I mean, I can off the top of my head right now think of two people who are our age that are uh, either friends or family that are so devoted to the Disney company that like they always wear Disney clothing. Right. They they buy into the lifestyle brand of Disney and even have like tattoos related to it. I went to uh, Chipotle yesterday since we're talking about big corporations and uh, the woman who made my burrito had a Minnie Mouse tattoo on her arm. Yeah. And I thought, oh, wow, like, there's still people. I mean, she was, like, in her early 20s, but, like, there's still people who are so attached to the brand that, like, it's important enough to do that. And I have to imagine that it transcends the idea of, I like the Disney Corporation, if you're going to get a tattoo, right? Yeah, yeah. This was an interesting tattoo. It was Minnie Mouse's face 
but the details were erased from inside and all that was there was the bow in her head. You know, the little, huh. like the, the marker that's like, this is yeah, Minnie and yeah, not yeah. Min- Mickey. Yeah. Oh, I kind of like that actually. Yeah. It was a cool idea. So, um, the Moomin books really exploded. There was something called the Moomin boom in the 1990s. Do you mean the, uh, the Moomy boomy? The Moomy boomy. Uh, <laughs> this is apparently because there was a Japanese animation series that has 104 episodes. Uh, and that is like, that's the thing that really like made it a huge deal across the world. So did the Moomins look a little bit familiar to you? Did you kind of have yeah. like an, an almost deja vu feeling? I'm sure I have encountered them somewhere. Yes. I, th- I think this must've happened because it was a, um, an animated series produced in Japan, um, by Lars Janssen. I think that's must be the younger brother and, uh, Dennis Livson. It was called Tales from Moomin Valley. And then there was a movie, Comet in Moomin Land, which is the second book. Okay. Yeah. So they've been bestsellers in Finland, Sweden, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. But this this made it big in Japan and other countries. Uh, there's merchandising based around them. Everything from coffee cups to t-shirts to plastic models. Even the Finnish president had uh, a Moomin watch that they would wear in public. The peak was apparently when they opened a theme park in Finland called Moomin World. It's exactly like Mickey Mouse, which has become Finland's international tourist destination. Uh, I I am very interested in Finland. I've never once thought about going there for, for this, though. Oh, but uh, you do now, right? You're going to go. I don't. And I'll tell you why. Because apparently, according to true Moomin enthusiasts, <laughs> they say that the the world theme park is not uh, faithful and that the newer animations, quote, banalize the original and philosophical Moomin world. And they just turn it into harmless family entertainment. Okay. So two things about that. One, I don't think you get to not go to Moomin world because it's not authentic because you just found out about the moons. <laughs> and two, and more seriously, it is so interesting to hear, like, yes, it is like Disney. It became yeah. what we think of as Disney-fied, but it had nothing to do with Disney. It only had maybe the model of, you know, theme park and and brand commercialization. Mm-hmm. But the moons were around, and in her lifetime, there was a moment when they... Uh, left behind the darkness or the sort of psychological truths and became something pleasant and comforting yeah. for yeah. people who were children when they first encountered the Moomins and their kids too, who were taught to like the Moomins, mm-hmm. not because of the moment that they read them, but because mama and daddy liked reading the Moomins. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This shows that it went from being a children's book to a brand and that that brand was associated with an emotional payoff, you know, that there were there, whatever that emotional payoff was that the Moomins made a promise to the people who loved it, that it would continue to fill them with joy. You know what? When you go to Finland, I have this place you can go. You can oh, go yeah. to the Moomin Museum of Tampere or Tampa Ray or however you say T-A-M-P-E-R-E. Okay. That's where you'll find original illustrations and some handmade Moomin models by 
Tova Yen. That sounds more my speed than like roller coasters and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so here's a quote from this whole long description. The Yansen family kept the rights of Moomins and controlled the Moomin boom. Mm-hmm. The artistic control now, as you mentioned, is in the hands of Lars Janssen's daughter, Sophia Janssen Zambra, uh, who acknowledged that her aunt probably lived off of coffee and cigarettes. Uh, That company continues to turn down offers from Walt Disney. The estimated yearly retail value of um, the Moomin characters is 700 million euros a year. Holy cow. That is a lot of money. Yeah, it's really, um, like, it's hard to wrap my head around that as, like, a creator of anything that, um, I mean, surely it wasn't that much when she was alive. She wouldn't have stayed in her Helsinki apartment, (laughs) right? Unless she would have, right? Maybe. Maybe she did, yeah, and maybe she just kind of squirreled away this money. I mean, also, the, the value of it is how you pay the people who work and, and mm-hmm. produce the stuff and and uh, maintain the rights and fight off Disney when they try and somehow figure out how to sue you for trademark infringement. It's intense. It's intense when you all of that, when you think about it in relation to this, this relatively harmless book that we read. Um, so, yeah, so it's popular. It, it's very popular, <laughs> so much so that uh, one of <laughs> Finland's vice presidents referred to the Moomins as... Finland's crown jewels and they've been referred to as a religion by uh, somebody who wrote one of the Moomin movies so there is it, it, it I guess the Disney comparison is very apt for us maybe Disney's bigger uh, but this the, the guy that's cited here Mark Huckerby he worked on adaptations of Peter Rabbit, Thunderbirds, and Danger Mouse. All stuff that, that I grew up with and that I'm familiar with. Uh, and he said, like, Moomins is far more, like, of a religious experience for the audience. And he says it's also head and shoulders above any of those other children's properties they've worked on. Um, I think we should uh, make it clear that the Peter Rabbit that this guy worked on mm-hmm. was the TV series not the um, uh, somewhat uh, dismaying uh, movie that just came out. Okay, I don't know anything about that, so I'll I'll leave that in your court. Oh, you don't know about this. Uh, The new Peter Rabbit movie uh, puts Peter Rabbit in kind of a um, uh, mean-spirited, vandalistic character who abuses the, uh, the, the human lead of the movie and is basically a foul-mouthed bastard. Oh, so it's like the alt-right version of Peter Peter Rabbit that he's just well, living off welfare and stealing carrots from the farmer. God, I hadn't even realized that that's one way you could take it. Mhm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's transition from that into talking about how there's apparently a, a big name English language adaptation of the Moomin's work that includes people like Rosamund Pike as Moomin Mama. Will Self is in it as a character called the Muskrat. I was shocked when I read that out loud. Uh, Kate Winslet's in it as well. Lots of big name people. This is just happening right now. This is a a series called Moomin Valley. Um, It is in its second season right now. And uh, I know what I'm going to try and find as soon as we're done here. (laughs) Well, the other thing that I think is fascinating, despite all the money, despite all the adaptations, 
is that this series has a lot of literary devotees, that there are people who are considered, you know, true writers, big, big literary genre writers. There's some people who are also like sci-fi writers in here who have said, this is like one of the most important books I ever read. Uh, you've got a list here. Ali Smith, Sheila Hetty, Jeanette Winterson. My book has a Jeanette Winterson quote on the back of it. That's crazy. Have you ever read any Jeanette Winterson? No, I haven't. She's like, she doesn't quite match the Moomin troll feel. Yeah, I wouldn't expect so. Neither does Terry Pratchett or Philip Pullman. Pullman Terry says Pratchett it should have more re- than anybody else. I Maybe. Think. Yeah. But Philip Pullman says it should have received a Nobel Prize. Yeah, and Pratchett said she was one of the greatest children's writers ever. There's a quote here uh, from another writer named Frank Cottrell Boyce, who apparently wrote the opening ceremony to the 2012 Olympics. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, could... and uh, what's his name directed it? Uh, the guy who directed... Oh, Danny Boyle. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember the directing. I didn't know that it required a script. Well, if you're going to direct, you really do want to have a script before you begin. Isn't it just people dancing and stuff? No? Is there more to it than that? you got to write that shit down, man. Okay. Um, Boyce said, I didn't realize that the Moomin books were set in a real place. <laughs> I thought Finland was made up when I first read it. Okay, hold on, it. hold on. So we do want to read this whole thing, but... He was 10 when he first read that. Yeah. So not only that, but also, it's not set in a real place, except... He's saying Finland is there. That yeah, the, yeah. The place that Moomin Valley came from yeah, is yeah. Finland. And so he's even thinking of that as a real place. Um, yeah, he said to the point that like it, it's like Narnia, that the world building just is, is totally immersive. And we'll talk about this later in the episode, but um, there's people who say like one of the real values of these series is the way that they take the environment seriously. Uh, let's take a break. I'm going to go watch the opening ceremony of the Olympics again and okay. see if I can figure out who wrote what. Charlie, I don't know if you heard, but yesterday as we're recording this, Bob Iger stepped down as CEO of the Disney Corporation. And I think it may have to do with the fact that they asked us to sell Super Context to them for millions of dollars. And we said no. Yes, except it's not that we said no, it's they realized, oh my God, you offered them money. You have to go. (laughs) Super Context is not going to be bought by Disney. They don't have time to sign the paperwork before we uh, sunset the show. You'd be surprised how fast they can sign that paperwork if there's money to be made. We are actually a Patreon-supported podcast. Uh, It's very important for us to make it clear right now, though. Super Context is going to finish production of regular episodes in May of this year. We have a Patreon campaign that is paying for production now, uh, and it will continue after we cease regular production, but it's two very distinct things. Right now, people who support us on Patreon help us pay our hosting fees, cover the expenses for media artifacts, uh, and also like gas when you have to go across the city to a stationary store, (laughs) and also maintain this recording setup. But beginning in May, we are going to cease production of our regular episodes, and the Patreon support will go towards keeping the RSS feed of this show public and active and free so that anybody can still discover the show and they can dig into our archives. So if you join us right now, holy cow, thank you so much. 
appreciate it. And you can have access to rewards like outtakes and blooper reels, biweekly bonus mini episodes, and the monthly Super King context. March is stand by me, Chris. You ready for that pie eating scene? I, yeah, I don't remember that in particular, but, uh, oh my God, this is going to be fantastic. I expect a text when you get there. Look, all I'm going to say is how astonished I am because we are two months away from retiring this show and we have more supporters now than we ever have before. We are two months after we announced that we are retiring yeah. the show. It's wonderful <laughs> to see this. And we have a brand new patron this week named James McDonald. So thanks, James, for joining us. Thank you so much. And all of you who are sticking with us to the bitter end and being supportive and taking your thank yous, you all are amazing. Thank you so much. Alex Laird, Alice Florence, Ambrose Allen, Amit Doshi, Andy Riggs, B.B. Schwells, Bennett Callahan, Beth Barnett, Beth Gilmore, Billy Whitehouse, Bing Bong Man, Brandon Daniels, Brian Chovenich, Caroline Zoids, Chris Marlton, Cliff Landis, Coco, Dave Jordan, Dave Wachter, Elijah Tilstra, Evan Mapstone. Thank you to all of you. And thank you to Fred Rasco, Gregory C. Giordano, Ira James Udiskin, Jason Puckett, Jim Taylor, Jess Staten, John Klima, John Pheasant, Joseph Aleo, Juan Patton, Hunta Slash Cult, Calvin Ellis, Carmela Padovich, Kate Sharon, Kevin Wetter, Christian Hirvola, Lee Fowler, Lokesh Dakar, Luciano Fuck, Luigi Oswego, Melinda Hale, and this episode's co-producer, Miriam Meany. Thank you for the episode suggestion, Miriam. And thank you to Misha Moon, Nathan Weatherford, Nick Sage, Patrick Malka, Pete Bowe, Philip, R.M. Rhodes, The Podcast, Rain It In, Matt and Rachel, Roar Vinland, Rob Sloan, Robert Negoesco, Roman Marichik, Romantic Placebo, Ron Billado, Ross Llewellyn, Ryan O'Neill, Sari Nichols, Seth Friedman, Simon Workman, Tara Meshack, Thomas Tremberger, Chris, I'm just going to take it to the end, Veal Height, and Whitney Buchanan... Yeah. who was left off of last episode's thanks. Oh. We're so sorry about that. Cut sorry, and paste Whitney. error. Yeah, and so I'm going to say thank you, and Chris, you're going to say thank you too. Yeah, Whitney, thank you very much. I'm sorry for Charlie's error. Yes, I'm a scumbag. I would never do that to you. If you want Charlie to forget that you support our show, go ahead and visit us at patreon.com supercontext. And we're back. Chris, I was totally surprised that... Um, you know, gender and sexuality was going to become part of the discussion of this book. Not so much what's in the book, but the way that it came to be and Jansen's you know, sort of worldview. Mm, yeah. Well, it's clear that, uh, you know, when you look at her personal life and then you understand how the symbolic representations play out, it is part of it. Um, I think it's more a case of diversity behind the scenes than representation in the storytelling. Exactly. So we have a lot of material about when she first started thinking about writing this book or, or how she felt about the war and something that she kept saying or kept chewing on was the idea that world war two was a men's war. This was sort of her battle cry. It's a men's war. Um, it's, created by men and puts men in danger and it uh, makes it difficult for women to live. Mm -hmm. uh, so Jane Schilling in Prospect Magazine sums it up like this. 
Appalled by the war, a men's war, she wrote. She was beset by violent disagreements with her father. Remember that he was kind of anti-Semitic and maybe leaned too close to Hitler. Uh, Anxiety about her brother, Per Olav, who was serving on the Northern Front. And questions about her relationship with her lover, the artist Tapio Tapio Vara, also a serving soldier who longed to have a child with her. So there's a lot in there all of a sudden. Um, Jansen was not um, an out lesbian. Mm-hmm. She had at least one relationship with a man. Um, it's mentioned a couple times that you know men and women were interesting to her, but that's like hearsay, secondhand. Yeah. Um, but she did write, I can see what would happen to my work if I married. I would either be a bad painter or a bad wife. She saw in her mom sort of the loss of a fully realized artistic life because she was a homemaker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting in comparison to how we hear about her upbringing, which sounds like this wonderful, weird household full of artists. And yet, oh, yeah, like, total freedom. You can do whatever you like. Look, yeah. there's a monkey, all that. Mm-hmm. Except, you know, her dad was, sounds unpleasant. And uh, it sounds like she felt like her mother was repressed by him. Yeah. And um, as James Guida wrote in The New Yorker, uh, Jansen was taken with men and women. That was the thing I was talking about. Came close to marrying, found lasting love with the graphic artist uh, Tuliki Piatia, um, and wrote about men. Of course, I'm sorry for them. And of course, I like them. But I've no intention of devoting my whole life to a performance I've seen through a men's war. And here's what I've been referring to. Jansen, whose best known cartoons were aimed at Hitler, couldn't abide her father's politics. He had fought against the Bolshevist side in the Civil War during his youth and stood by Germany as a liberator. Uh, now, this is this weird thing. There was like a another front or another sort of thread of World War II where Germany helped Finland repel Russia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's all I know about that. So I think the thing that seems to get forgotten about Jansen with all of this commercialization of these little characters is that she started off as a political cartoonist. This yeah. would, this would I, I don't even know if I can come up with like an accurate example because most of the political cartoonists I turn to aren't name brands, but I'm thinking of the nib, something I reference a lot on here mm-hmm. uh, run by Matt Bores. It would be like if Matt Bores who does a political cartoon every week about the current state of things, then went and created Disney world, you know, like yeah. it's, um, and so of course people now go back and they look at these stories and they say, well, clearly there's some allegories going on here, but when you just pick this up and you don't know anything about her or the world that she was creating it in, it seems pretty innocuous. And, and there's like, several interlocking questions. How could someone who was a, um, a angry hit him in the mouth political cartoonist end up writing this kind of um, uh, life affirming, um, beautiful world building children's series. Mm-hmm. And also how could a children's series like this have such richness of emotion and still contain sort of, the melancholy and the frustration in a way that would be 
still pleasant to children. Mm-hmm. And here it is. You know, she was a, I don't even know if closeted is the thing to say. She had to hide half or most of her sexuality. Well, this is kind of interesting. Apparently that changed partway through her life. So there's a piece in The Economist by Dan Richards about her. And it says that there were these Finnish islands that she and and her partner would often visit. And they eventually created like a second home there. Uh, And the islands are referred to as a personal outlet and a creative one for both of them. Same-sex relationships were illegal in Finland, but when they went to these islands, apparently the local community there was tolerant, and this was a place where they felt like they could be themselves. I think this is kind of like going to California. Okay. Finding a region of the country. Portland. Or Portland, yeah, Portland Mm -hmm. now. Um, And remember, the description was uh, Clove Haru was a tiny uninhabited island in the Gulf of Finland Mm. when they first built a house there. And then I think a lot of people decided to do that. Yeah. And the kind of people who want (laughs) a house on an uninhabited island probably aren't people who are cool with the mainstream. And a lot of the people who were her neighbors refer to her as shy and childlike. You know, this is not, she she doesn't sound like a person who was out on the streets just constantly railing about politics. And yet there was a large part of her life that she had to keep hidden and then manifested. I mean, this isn't even what I think of as her personal work. This is her commercial work. And then you, you would have to look at her adult fiction as a completely different thing. Yeah. And I mean, she was clear about being angry about those, you know, about what she wrote in those cartoons. She wasn't shy in sort of private or personal communication. Mm-hmm. She just wasn't, um, she wasn't a public figure. She wasn't, was not an angry public figure. So let's talk about the themes. Let's try to tie this up a little bit. Cause this is a, this is an odd project. I don't think we've ever captured something quite like this. Something that is like, everything from a children's book to a theme park. Um, there's a piece by Sammy Main on creative block. This is the one I was talking about. Sammy talks about how Moomin Valley is one of the characters and that it's one of the lushest and most visually stunning environments an artist or author has ever created. Uh, quote, nature features largely in her work. This includes forests, islands, seas. It is partly a Scandinavian thing, but Tove always made the locations more exciting and more exotic. Um, I didn't necessarily get that from this book, but this is also the first book in a thing that lasted for like decades. Yeah, I mean, when people are talking about Moomin Valley, this is not... The book doesn't start in Moomin Valley. It's like the origin story of Moomin Valley, right? Because they build the house at the end. And so she started by writing about how scary it is to think about your house being bombed. Mm. Then post-war, she began to develop the world, the the beautiful Finland that felt made up. The world, what the world should look like after the war. Uh, Jane Schilling wrote about it for Prospect Magazine uh, and said, this Jane Schilling piece was interesting because she was basically like, when I was a kid and I first encountered these books, I hated them. And I thought the Moomins were really creepy. And then she said, as a mother now, like I went out and I re-experienced them and I get it now. But, uh, there's a, there's a quote 
in this book, in The Great Flood, where Moomin Mama is telling the main character, Moomin Troll, about like what life was like for them before. And they basically like hidden houses behind walls, behind stoves. Yeah, they, they were house, um, not spirits, but like house supernatural beings, gremlins yeah. or trolls or gnomes or something like that. And uh, the quote was that humans, the only way humans knew they were there was when they felt a cold draft on the back of their neck when they were alone. And that was one of the like nice, I liked that moment. I was like, nice oh, creepy, this yeah. is this is the like blinking of horror here in the well, Moomin stuff. And the whole exchange is actually really wonderful because Moomin, Moomin Troll says, did people know we were there? And his mom says, some did. Mm-hmm. And when they were alone, they might feel us as a cold draft on the back yeah. of their necks. So Jane Schilling talks about Jansen's work as giving her a cold draft on the back of her neck feeling. And throughout all of the media that this stuff appears in, uh, from the illustrations, the political cartoons, the paintings, the cartoons, all of this stuff, she says the Moomins made... Jansen into an international celebrity, but there's this weird unsettling tension in the Moomin stories between safety and danger and the comfort of the familiar and the yearning for adventure, that there's a potent tug of nostalgia and a risky allure of an uncertain future. So remember when the Moomin world was created, there were some people who said, Hey, this is not, this is not the real Moomin stuff. This is just, you're Mm -hmm. just selling the image. Because unsettling tension between safety and danger um, and then potent tug of nostalgia and risky allure of an uncertain future is uh, exactly what you don't put into your theme park. (laughs) Yeah, there's a theme park with like a giant snake that pops up out in front of your roller coaster boat or whatever. Yeah. Well, actually, I think there are those. This would be the snake that pops out as you're eating in a restaurant and no (laughs) one knows what happened. Yeah. You know, of those three things, comfort of the familiar and a yearning for adventure, that's totally the Disney stuff. Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. but being scared where you think you are safe and wanting to be free while also wanting to be somehow young again, Mm-hmm. That's that's not for theme parks. They seem incredibly relevant to today's circumstances here in the states. Uh, I wonder if there will be kind of a resurgence of them here uh, as you know our political world becomes more uncertain, and we're sort of trying to figure out how to how to balance the that feeling yeah. with what we assume is you know safety and security. I do wonder if there's somebody doing something right now that will become, that will fulfill that role for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like when, when Schilling describes the Moomin uh, image or the Moomin work before the book, like when um, Jansen was d- putting them into cartoons and not really thinking of it as, oh, these are the Moomin trolls, but just yeah. like drawing stuff. Uh, Schilling says, Moomins began to appear um, in the years leading up to the Second World War as subjects in their own right in the cartoons of Jansen, sometimes sinister. Uh, a 1934 watercolor painted during a trip to Germany shows a red-eyed black Moomin pacing the streets of a deserted town. But more often, the Moomins were consoling with their resilient and inclusive bonds of family, love, and tolerance that resist all catastrophe. That right there seems to be the theme of all of this. Yeah, that's why the book's um, comfort 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Jansen was gratified by the early success of the Moomin's stories, but she regarded them initially as, quote, half-forbidden, pleasure-tinged hobbies, an entertaining distraction from her real work. And we talked about that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she uh, was quoted as saying that her life with the Moomin trolls had begun to resemble a worn-out marriage and that she was drawing them with a feeling that is starting to resemble hatred and sometimes that she stood before her own work as if it were a closed door. So that's in 1959. Yeah. Um, a little more than halfway through the Moomin run because by 1970 she was done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's another quote here. The, Tove Jansen's household sounds fucked up the more we yeah, read about it. As we started this episode and, and you know, reading the sort of superficial descriptions, it was like, God, that must have been cool. Yeah. You know, to have parents who were. With a monkey? You know, you know the, monkey, the monkey is like the most, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, bullshit version of this. But a bohemian household artists. Uh, you know, bringing the kid into the profession early and mm-hmm. just like Scandinavian cool, right? In the in the early parts of the 20th century. But then Except, here's another quote. Apparently she had told previous lovers that her family brought her up to feel sorry for all of the people who aren't artists. Uh, and that, you know, basically they she was expected to be an artist because that was a lifestyle. It wasn't just a choice. Yeah. I mean, we think it sounds pretty good because the idea of being an artist was like the escape from suburban life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in this artist as a identity was what she was being told she ought to do. One of the things that's interesting also about this particular Moomin book, the great flood is what you mentioned from her introduction. She says, oh, this is the first happy ending I've ever written. Um, the book ends, they they find their house and they all move into the house together. Yay. And like, doesn't seem like that would be the case based on all of these horrors that were going on around Especially her. Especially why she wrote it. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, um, you know, what she was trying to deal with. But she did give it a happy ending um, despite the fact that uh, she was in a a war-torn world. Yeah. uh, Lisa Allardyce in The Guardian thinks that there's somewhat of a parallel between what was going on with World War II while Jansen was writing this book to the ecological crisis today. There's a quote from, I think, Moomin Mama in the book, and she says, Oh, dear, the beautiful sea is gone. There's no great storms, no transparent ice, and no gleaming water that reflects the the stars. It's all finished and lost and gone that there's this, this like idea that the, the catastrophe, you know, symbolized by a flood in this, but was representative of the war, uh, destroyed the world that they recognized. Yeah. And despite that sounding like some kind of current assessment, some sort of child's version of climate change, that's from the Moomin troll books, Mm -hmm. you know, long before we really understood climate change. So, yeah, so these themes from the Moomin books seem to be what people have really attached to, and which is why I imagine our co-producer, Miriam, suggested that we we get into this. Um, the, the gender stuff seems like the, it adheres to some stereotypes, but then in the other sense, like the mama is really 
the the head of the household more so than the father the father's kind of flighty and goes off on his little adventures um there is however the general feeling that uh you will be comforted reading these stories because you'll see a catastrophe and then you'll see how this family deals with it by being cozy together every day and ultimately these are survival stories Quote, no problem is so great, it can't be made better by a cup of coffee and a cuddle. I mean, what I find most appealing is the idea that that might be true, you know? <laughs> uh, Jude Montague from Artlist says, the world of Moomin is an antidote to war and disagreement. Obstacles, differences are assimilated by the goofy, anthropomorphized family who moves steadily forward and I love this, and uses no guns or money. Moomin Valley is a land of fairy tale, a happy society sprung from the dreams during the war that it is possible to defeat war itself. One of the things that struck me as interesting about this book is every single character that they encounter, you know, whether it's like a random guy who lives inside a tree or it's a cat or whoever. You mean Willy Wonka? Yeah, he is pretty much Willy Wonka. Um, all of these characters are perfectly willing to share and welcome these folks into their lives. There's no point where they show up and somebody's like, oh, stay away, don't take my stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's especially interesting, I mean, right before, <laughs> this may feel unrelated, but right before uh, I came down to the studio to record this with you, I was watching this exchange on The View between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Meghan McCain about uh, socialism and the idea of it destroying American society. And it's just fascinating to then like turn to this book that's almost a hundred years old and see like this utopia for this other person was, yeah, anybody would be willing to share their stuff with you as long as it would like turn out all right in the end. Yeah. And that they could have arguments and it would work out. Mm hmm. Like it wasn't everybody's happy and everybody anticipates each other's desires, but they compromise. Mm -hmm. They have uh, problems that are solved by people doing good things or backing off and settling for something less than the perfect situation. Yeah, the New Yorker says that there's a debate that you can feel that is under the surface in these stories, and that debate is between voices that speak for the open hand of compromise and diplomacy and those that see the truth as, quote, naked or nothing, wills that would rather do whatever the hell they like. <laughs> Courtney Tenz wrote that uh, the goofy-looking creatures neither overreact nor become overwhelmed by the obstacles in their way, always working together as a collective to overcome hindrances, real or imagined. But I also don't get from it any kind of socialist propaganda. You no. know, there, there isn't a capitalist that they are fighting against. Mm -hmm. It's more that their actions show their values rather than sort of setting up some kind of, um, well, this is the representation of the not good situation. And here's the representation of the good situation. Yeah. And despite the fact that the, um, that the story isn't overtly about representation of, you know, diverse perspectives, when you read through these, according to Ula Brown, everyone in the story gets accepted. Everyone's habits and needs are tolerated. Uh, the Moomins may be the triangle of this family, 
but there are different characters it's a flexible space that makes up a family there's different characters that come and go and uh, they get to explore their individuality they hide from each other they renegotiate the boundaries of their relationships the characters quote feel the need and have the freedom to go off from time to time disappear and rediscover themselves which is interesting because the, the the stuff with the dad comes to mind with that and yeah. when I was reading it, I didn't take it that way. I took it as like, oh, this guy just like left them and the mother's sad about it. Right. It, you know, it came across to you as this um, a dilettantish, decadent dad who's just like, I'm going to go off. And then yeah. when he sees them, he's like, oh, hey, man. Right. Mm-hmm. That was what mm-hmm. you took from it. Whereas it's a much more forgiving text, I think. Than yeah. That. Yeah. And I think about how different Jansen's experience of family is from mine and from yours. Oh, for sure. And how I, I still felt totally um, comforted by the Moomins and the Great Flood. Like, I liked it. The little bit of creepiness, the little bit of danger made me feel connected to it. And I was pleased that the family found each other but what i didn't sort of require but still made me feel good was that idea of full acceptance of everyone this sort of flexible family concept that ula brown talks about and of course that's what someone who is gay or somewhat gay and is worried about what people will say about it that's what they need you know the being able to imagine a world where it's okay to be different and to to want something different than the other folks who still support you and love you. You've been listening to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How it's made and how it informs our everyday culture. Our theme music is Human Factor by Mile Marker. And right now you're listening to Drive Fast by Three Chain Links. Show notes and all our past episodes are available at supercontextpodcast.libson.com. You can email the show at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com to tell us what you like, what you don't like, and to suggest topics for future shows. And I'm available on Twitter as at Christian Sager. And I'm there at Bennett Radio. Two N's, two T's.